attacking in their own flank. That'll give you an idea how much those fighter factories mean to the Major. Red Dog Leader to all squadrons. Fighters coming through the flag. Gunners on your toes. There's another one going down in B Squadron, sir. Fighters, flak and smoke punts. Red dog leader to pack, starting four, five degree left turn. Repeat, four, five degree left turn. Stay in close and follow the leader. Mannheim will have to wait. We'll divert to the secondary, those marshalling yards on the outskirts of the city. This group is gonna get through one of these days. Assuming I'm still commander of the 918th. You're not likely to be replaced, sir. Not you. Well, there's a very important man who's going to be on the base this afternoon, Major. I might disagree with you. Unless I miss my guess, he wants me out. Twelve o'clock high. With guest stars Gary Lockwood and Lynn McCarthy. identification. It's 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. visit was buried four million years ago. Well, I must say, you guys will certainly come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> time structure in 2001 is a way bigger time gap. We have somewhat parallels approaching the monolith first and the shriek is caused or the, the siren is set off. The, uh, that's like a radio feedback. So if the monolith is, is sending out a signal, we're talking about on the moon, correct? Mm. correct? The second monolith, I think when it gets exposed to the sun, it sends out a signal 
they're here basically mm -hmm. they made it but the the power in that antenna mm. which base i think basically an antenna and once it's exposed to the sun it does its job and that's it pretty much mm. but it overwhelmed the communication sets in the helmets which caused a feedback which would be excruciating i guess until the, the speakers in your helmet gave out but yeah there's a little bit of science behind that and it's very plain simple science uh mm -hmm. with radio communications um I have to give credit. Keep that for a second. Yeah. I have to give credit to uh, my old shipmate, Jerry Smith, EW1 Jerry Smith, who out in the, while we were watching 2001 in our birthing, where we kind of hung out in our racks, he just came out and said that. That's He said, that's radio feedback. That's what that is. But he had probably read the book as well. And I think, isn't that mentioned yeah. in the book? Yeah. Yeah. It's mentioned after that, too, that the monolith is left unpowered. That was its kind of yeah, it, full it shot spent, it's oh so it had a battery backup and it was like you said purposefully there for letting them know and once that signal dissipated that was it it was simply just a monolithic stuff how would how would we feel if we knew that that was a they're here kind of message like as a warning i think that's mm -hmm. terrifying because you know we were talking about how advanced civilizations don't simply come in and welcome lesser civilizations they usually absorb them or destroy them and mm -hmm. you know could be we could be so insignificant just be passed up too you know that that would be the probably the better <laughs> of those options but yeah definitely uh insidious yeah we get a door prize for showing up i think maybe <laughs> but that's a really interesting point too because if it is in fact the trigger that we've reached this point that the signal is set then we have achieved a certain level of technological sophistication that in itself i guess is something for us to think about in a new nuclear age because this is a, a world that's completely armed with nukes that has a, a nuclear powered uh, spaceship that's going to go to jupiter this is the power that we're wielding that would trouble a higher life form maybe we need to be subjugated because we have this technology that we're maybe not sophisticated enough as creatures yet to wield very much so and and well put that we would be treated as a threat perhaps and kept in a cage like they did with the bowman mm -hmm. they didn't accept them into their society and Bowman's point of view in that sequence, not only does it change, but as he changes and sees things, he's perhaps remembering or thinking of or hallucinating things, but manifesting them in his room, in his quarters. So in a way, maybe, you know, he's kind of participating in the same kind of magical thinking as Danny is, or as Jack may be in terms of manifesting things in his environment where he's closed off you know just in his own world world and the more time that goes on the more he is becoming a child kind of the way that we age we become more like children and we're a little bit more needy in a way the bowman who is in bed and having a hard time even keeping food down is not totally dissimilar to the kind of behavior of somebody who's just witnessed and experienced a great trauma or something he's shaking we're we're seeing danny shaking we're seeing a lot of characters having these great awakenings when they're really really vulnerable 
you know, the Bowman discovers the message when he's alone on the ship. He's just shut down Hal and, and he's completely screwed. And then bingo, you know, suddenly Dr. Floyd, you know, you won the prize. Thanks for telling me now. Yeah, right. This information may have helped us a little earlier. <laughs> Frank's dead. <laughs> what the fuck are we all going to do? <laughs> Shit, it's just me. <laughs> just talking to myself. And then... And- that's exactly right. And and it turns out that nobody knew and everybody was killed uh, when they didn't have to be. But Hal ran wild with his paranoia. So And Hal, Hal is ultimately responsible for what he did. Mm-hmm. He murdered those men wrongfully. Mm-hmm. But Hal was also participating, I suppose, uh, uh, certainly according to your thesis, a sense of magical thinking in his motivations for doing what he did thinking that there might be a way to, let's say, at least evoke what is really spelled out so eloquently in the article. He's executing these decisions specifically out of a hope that they will allow him to evolve or to change his state. That's an, it's a really important part of his motivation, I think. And if Hal had gotten through the gate by himself um, with with Bowman in tow, maybe like holding on to the back, maybe. (laughs) Imagine if that happened. (laughs) And then to meld with this artificial intelligence that's a crazy sentient now Mm -hmm. and Bowman and to put them together, which almost happened. Mm. Which could maybe, you know, what if Bowman got stuck in the front of the ship and, mm. you know, he's just holding on right right there in the front. Yeah. If, if Hal had gone through the gate himself, where would he have landed and what would he have done with those weaponized satellites? He would have pointed them at the earth mm. and scorched it because Hal wasn't in an OK place. Hal was not in a safe place. <laughs> <laughs> But you can't help but feel sorry for Hal all the way down the line, all the way through every single fault of his. You can't help but feel sorry for him, but you have to convict him for murdering the crew. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest that we came to through our little. Yeah. And we're seeing now, unfortunately, in our own world, what happens when people take actions done in paranoia and, and try to justify the self-defense when it's completely out of bounds of reality yeah keep that just for a second i really wanted to say how much i love how you just compared danny even more to dave bowman because it is that similar uh but there's there's even more to discover Mm. there's more and more similarities between the two between baby bowman and danny Mm. when bowman becomes the ultimate baby the new embryo of the future the The ubermensch the ubermensch we have a, a brilliant shot that begins with a tilt up the earth into space. And then in the left of frame, slowly, we see the, the radiant bubble of the embryo coming in closer and then the shot changes. That shot is very similar to our first shot in the, of the earth in the movie. The first shot of the movie, the, the earth rise or the alignment with the sun and the moon, that shot opens with the strains of also Sprock Zarathustra. And mm-hmm. thus is the exact same thing mirrored at the end, basically repeating of the earth this time with the embryo. 
and also Spock coming in again, kind of signifying a bookend and also the cyclical nature of going into the next chapter of humanity. And you brought out an interesting point about how The Shining parallels that sort of elliptical timeline and also mirroring the, the beginning and end with the driving and the, the music. A lot going on there. Yeah, I, I do believe that those are bookends in 2001, and I do believe that they are bookends in The Shining. It was one of the last days of shooting for me on the film, and we were all very relaxed, and Stanley was very open to any ideas. And One of the discussions we had was how we would go from each stage of aging to the next, and I think I may have contributed the idea of specifically never returning to the younger age, but that he would suddenly cut to whatever it was the younger version saw, and you'd cut to the older version looking back at the first version, but the first version wasn't there anymore. No puff of smoke, no dissolve, just wasn't there. And I think I, I contributed the idea of the glass as being one of the ways to go from the character sitting at the table eating to the next jump in age. I, I, I understand it was Keir D'Elia's idea to break the glass at the end of 2001. Mm. And Kubrick said, that's good. Let's use that. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought it was good because it related to Jungian breakthrough, which breakthrough is a Jungian phrase mm. because Bowman is about to break through in a minute through the gate again mm -hmm. one last time and then he's transformed to this amalgamation of his pod and a little bit of technology. I think there's a little bit of binary included in Baby Bowman as well as maybe he's uber human now. But I don't know if you guys relate that to Danny in any way, that glass breaking. Well, we certainly have mirrors going on. But why would it be important to Danny? You know, he's if if breakthrough in a union sense is about reforming yourself and i guess again manifesting a newer reality of the way you're thinking about things and what has been holding you back maybe i heard that all answers matter <laughs> it's definitely a trauma situation that he's got to get a breakthrough from it's he, of course ends up being the one who performs that oedipal right in this case, saves his mother by killing his father. All good stuff. So there's that other layer feel to The Shining. And as you peel these layers of the onion away, you you know, the, the layers get thicker. But yeah, the, the, the bookends in 2001 are definitely 
not in the same time as the rest of the film. Although mm -hmm. they seem connected, mm -hmm. they kind of tell another story. And it does seem a little bit elliptical. But there's so much going on with that, with baby Bowman and, you know, the embryo. There's so much to be said about that. Were they time photographs in 1966 of actual embryos, color photographs? The sculptor of that, of the embryo, was also the final sculptor of C-3PO and the Stormtrooper in Star Wars. And she died in a car accident right at the beginning of production of Star Wars. But there's some interesting stuff about her working in Brian Johnson's shop in the- Brian scene. Johnson, another hero of mine as I was growing up. Doug Trumbull, mm. John Dykstra, Brian Johnson. Yes. The Dykstra Flex. Mm. Motion control. Yeah. And that all came from Star Trek, which I started watching We're when I was- Talking about the warp- Six. Uh, using the slit scan the, mm -hmm. uh, for the warp engines. I, I ABC uh, the ABC afternoon movie had an introduction that was slit scan hmm. with some 1960s upbeat get get ready to watch cinema kind of music hmm. you know over the top of it but uh, kind of cool slit scanning going on there too. Moore was the sculptor who who did the final version of C-3PO and Stormtrooper and wow. who sculpted the Star Child using Robert Ardrey's book, African Genesis. And what else was it, Wes? That well, there was a brand new, uh, what they, I'll just quote, it says, groundbreaking in utero photography was a big inspiration. So you could almost imagine the diffused light, you know, around the, the fetus and giving it kind of a uh, ethereal or even ghostly mm -hmm. kind of appearance there but i think she combined a lot of that imagery to make that final composition and those photos were in life magazine 1965 it says here so that's interesting too maybe something that would have shown up at you know at the office or at home and maybe sparked a few the ideas floor of the uh, 1965 world's <laughs> right at the end of the World's <laughs> Fair, somebody picked up a Life magazine that was on the curb next to the hot dog stand at the Minnesota Pavilion. And I'm sure it. those photographs sparked a, at least a bit of drama back in the day. I mean, it was on the cover of Life, of course, so everybody got exposed to it. But it was some pretty heavy, heavy subject material, especially back then, because I'm sure all ideas were brought into there regarding women's rights and abortion rights. Hurt your own man. You must reach out to people. I've tried that, Nora. It doesn't work. Everyone always draws away. I didn't. Nora, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back and see their faces and know what they're thinking. I don't want to go back to her. What should I do? When I was going through collecting the research for 2001, I was having moment after moment of discovery. It was just a huge wash. Mm. And I thought, 
I think I need to go look at this like I'm looking at The Shining and I need to go look at the casting. And I had looked at the casting maybe once before and I didn't see anything. I looked in it for some sort of pattern, some sort of purpose, and I did not see anything. And But I was expecting something from each actor's last role, perhaps. And it didn't come up with anything so much. It was hard to find because a lot of those actors had done a lot of little acting bits and there was a lot to go through and a lot to sift. Wanna know what happened? I let a man die today. He was wounded and I let him die. I made a mistake. I had to get the plane back. A QM production. Starring Robert Lansing. Also starring John Larkin. With guest stars Pierre Dulea and Jill Howard. I don't remember where I found it in 1964 and what actor it was that really rang a bell for me. But mm. it just turned out that it, it was probably Frank Poole and Dave Bowman's roles in, in 12 O'Clock 12 High. 12 O'Clock High. I'd see, I love the movie with Gregory Peck. I had no idea there was a TV show in the 60s. I think it was a British show. Okay. I, guess that's I could be wrong about that. Oh, no, you're, you're <laughs> right. It is. It is a British show. And they were not featured players, right? They were small Correct. roles that they had. And I thought that was just funny. I'm like, all right, I'm with you. Pilots. I'll go have a look. And I started looking at everybody else. And, you know, even in 1964, some of these role, these actors were doing three or four things. Mm. And I had to go in and, and kind of look. Oh, you were a, a flight attendant in this. You were a navigator or you were a pilot in this. And then it got weird hmm. because as I ran up the pole of the cast, you had Bowman and, and Poole from 12 O'Clock High. And then you had Poole's parents we're both in a television show called Espionage together. Mm, yeah. And that's when I said, this is kind of getting interesting. And then I found it with William Sylvester and is it Jane Tizak? Margaret, yeah. Margaret Tizak. And they were in a film called Ring of Spies in 1964 about a real-world situation where double agents had given up information to Russia mm. based on a real story in British history. William Sylvester and Margaret Tizak are the spy antagonists in the film, all the way down to the point where... And you've, you've read the article, you know what's coming, but his character doesn't show up for 25 minutes into the film. And he also takes a very long journey to get to where he needs to be. I'm talking about William Sylvester's character. He doesn't show up in the film for about 25 minutes and he takes a similar journey through like the, the British tube system and, and such. The funny thing about all of that is that the poster kind of exhibits the same positions and I position as Bowman at the end of 2001 and there's a camera in the person's hands. He's, he's definitely in the same position. 
it's an odd poster, but he's holding a, a spy camera. But at, by the time that baby Bowman turns around at the end of 2001, he is in this position. And I thought that is just, that's just too much of a coincidence. This man could be a spy. Any one of these people could be a spy. This is the story of five real spies, a ring of spies. Headlines that made world news. Names that added a shattering new chapter to the records of espionage. How have we got on? I haven't. Nothing? Not a thing. There's no damn good you threatening me either. What kind of people are these who held the safety of a nation in their hands? Why did they do it? How were they caught? Now these questions are answered in a compelling film called Ring of Spies. And never, never has fact so outstripped fiction for daring and for suspense. If after all that's said and done about 2001 is that this all happened because something got in the way early on in the stages of planning and things went awry. How went awry? Because of other bad actors. Mm -hmm. And Bowman wound up where he wound up by an accident or by mistake. Yeah. Or not because of his planning mm -hmm. and none of that was his choice and he kind of gives you the look like how did i get here yeah <laughs> gives you that kind of david byrne perspective yeah, exactly <laughs> this is not my wife and we we talked about it before and and really interesting that you like become a part of the pod yeah in the novel the beings that end up creating the monoliths, they shed their biological forms and kind of transform into starships. And that's how they're able to transverse long distances and yeah. dimensions, right? And then eventually, I think they even shed you know, their physical form altogether. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the, the idea of them becoming like slowly from bio, purely biological to replacing parts that are shutting down faulty, et cetera, and then getting to a point where you're purely beings of light. Yeah, beings of light. Like something out of AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much. Talked about that. And along those lines, Wes, I wanted to bring up how important Star Trek is again to not only 2001, but to The Shining and why it's incorporated so much in The Shining. Yes. Um, you sound like Spock right there. Yes, yes. <laughs> Doctor, he understands. <laughs> he knows how to build a cannon and he's going to kill that Gorn guy. But Star Trek, the motion picture, and, I, and I'm sure Kubrick had advanced knowledge of this. Um, the voyage that the Enterprise takes in the motion picture from 1979 is crucial to understanding 2001 and how an alien technology might give you what you wanted and Jeez. and and change you this was the answer that was you know never really included in 2001 but like so inferred that that's what the alien technology would have done and what did voyager do what did Viger do it yeah. ran through worlds and collected them yeah and then took purses combata from us where is lieutenant ilea that unit no longer functions i've been given its form to more readily communicate with the carbon-based units infesting 
Enterprise. Carbon-based units? Humans, Ensign Perez. Us. Why does V'ger travel to the third planet of the solar system directly ahead? To find the creator. Then the ultimate, like Hal's greatest obsession and desire is to be the Versus Kambata. Crew member. Yeah, Ursus Kambata. So Elia. Elia. <laughs> I thought we were back oh, yeah, in we were uh talking cross purposes. Yeah, Hal's desire is to be what Ilea becomes by merging with the creator and actually having physical embodiment and sensuality mm. and soul and romance and all made it more curious and mm. saved them yeah she saved them Jeez. what does feature want with the creator to join with him to join with the creator how beecher and the creator will become one and who is the creator the creator is that which created beecher who is beecher beecher is that which seeks the creator star trek had two resurrections in 71, it went into syndication and it became what it is now. Mm -hmm. And it grew from there. And it was an amazing thing to, to watch and be a part of. I would escape at six o'clock every night on weekdays to go watch Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It was it filled a lot of big shoes for me. Spock, Kirk and McCoy were like mm -hmm. the, the the leadership that I probably needed in my life those kind of archetypes that I wanted and I sought them out, you know, and I saw the same thing in emergency with those two characters. Any, any of the characters in that firehouse were great leaders to me, you know, cause they got business done, but, and then Star Trek had a movie. And who would they use? Douglas Trumbull. Mm -hmm. And they used Douglas Trumbull. Some of the best effects work I think going. Oh, I, when I got my, my projector, my uh, mm -hmm. uh, digital projector, the first thing I pulled up was that, sequence into the heart of V'ger. Wow. Oh, it's great. In the wow. beginning when they show the edge of V'ger and the yeah. three Klingon ships and, and then they all get zapped. Yeah, because you get this great overlook shot of one of the Klingon ships and then it does that weird camera turn. Mm. You can see how much Robert Wise was inspired by 2001. And one of those things is the perspective change of flipping upside down or sideways or projecting something you know, on the on the side that and they'll do that for um, any kind of starship or territory that might be the antagonist. Mm. They'll tilt, uh, or they'll like have it at a, a different perspective, like a Dutch angle. Dutch angle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. more Dutch angles for the Klingons. <laughs> 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 I, I thought Vidra was was incredible. What Trumbull did with that, mm. the layers are beautiful. The attention, the detail, the, just seeing the making of that is pretty cool on YouTube. It's inspiring. We said, well, we can just damn the torpedoes, so to speak, and we're going to figure out how to do this thing. And it will require working 24 hours a day, three crews a day, seven days a week for the whole six months. And they were all VistaVision and we were all 70 millimeters. So we had to figure out how to combine different formats as well during the production. It's very technologically complicated. Bob Wise knew I was a director, and he trusted me implicitly to fix this thing for him. And so I directed this entire sequence. I had a tremendous amount of creative freedom given to me by Bob Wise and the studio. But that, that is what got me going back in the day was Star Trek. Star Trek in 71 on Channel 11 was in New York was just 
everything to me. And then it was just science fiction from there on out. Mm -hmm. But probably what got me into science fiction was Mr. Rogers, the trolley on Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Really? I love the trolley. I love the special effects of it. I love things that look real, but were miniaturized. Yes. Not so much Fabergé eggs, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was enamored with Fred Rogers trolley. I'm like, bring that thing out in the beginning. And then let me see at the end. Sure. I didn't care what King Friday was getting into. (laughs) I just wanted to see that trolley. All right, trolley. Neighborhood of make-believe. But I, I did love the puppets. The puppets were great too, and that yeah. they were sort of humanized. And as a matter of fact, my friend looks like King Friday. <laughs> Sans crown. <laughs> it is uncanny. It is so, he looks so much like King Friday that we discussed it and he was in agreement. I was like, yeah, I can see that. Wow. I kind of do. Troglodytes are eaten. My wren is my pet, is my very royal pet. Uh, greet it, Troglodytes Aida. Uh, meet my wren, Troglodytes Aida. <laughs> uh, oh, but, but Uncle Friday, uh, Troglodytes Aida is made of wood. He's he's a a, a toy on a stick. Niece Avalon, a pet is a pet. I enjoy troglodytes, Aiden. Perhaps you would even like to uh, give him a walk and sing to him. (laughs) So it was Star Trek and then it was special effects. It was people like John Dykstra from Star Wars and and Doug Trumbull and, and Brian Johnson, who is who was big on Space 99, Space yeah. 1999, and I love that show. And it wasn't so repetitious like Battlestar Galactica was, how they over- they used the special effects shots over and over yeah. again. Recycled. I'm like, oh, you could do so much more with a Viper. Have it to a loop. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian Johnson, apparently, you know, he, the dear old Jerry Anderson, apparently mm. was a little pissed off that... Uh, that Stanley Kubrick wanted to steal him away. So he told Kubrick that Brian wasn't all that good. Wow. And then Brian <laughs> found out that Kubrick had said back to Jerry, well, if he's not that good, then why do you want to keep him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> called. Yeah, called out. And then Jerry said, all right, I'm going to make this science fiction television show and I'm going to use your moon base yeah. <laughs> as my moon base alpha. Yes. <laughs> Take that. And then Kubrick so threatened to sue the show. Amazing. Now, I'll tell you what the real story was. Um, <laughs> Jerry didn't want anybody to go anywhere because he knew that the schedule on Thunderbirds was quite tight, but we were getting towards the end of it. And Derek and I had talked about it and he said it was fine for me to go on to 2001. And so I went on to 2001. And when I was there, Jerry actually phoned Stanley up and said, "Um, you don't want to use Brian, he's no good, he's useless. Why would he do that? And Stanley said, "Um, 
well, if he's useless, um, um, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, I've got a job for him back at, on Thunderbirds that he could do. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't Stanley um, wanting everybody off the thing. He wanted specific people to do specific things. And I was the person that did the wires and all the other bits and pieces. So I got the job. And it must be very flattering to you that uh, an American production team chose English technicians such as yourself for a job like this. Well, yes, I, I think partly because they have to make half the film over here. Well, they, that's the way they do it. Uh, so they use English technicians. And it made a lot of sense for the sort of uh, special effects supervisor to go onto the other side as well. So there was a coordination between two units. Spielberg has that sense of wonder that everyone talks about getting you in the, the mind space of being able to experience childlike wonder. Kubrick has the ability to get you to an unconscious or a subconscious wonder that, that doesn't even put you necessarily into a childlike state as much as it just puts you into a basic human state of stimulation, the subtlety and the onion of the layers of those subtleties add up to this whole other experience, which is like a hallucination or a fever dream so often because his films are evoking these base reactions in you, but they're doing it in this very subtle and subversive way. And, and Clockwork Orange, you know, it ends up with some guy, you know, leaving a potato on his front door with an alarm clock in it and they have to call the police. In 2001, you end up with a whole generation of people wanting to go to space and getting getting into space travel because the the feeling that he's trying to give you is awe. And, and that can only be expressed in a cinema and it can only be shown in a cinema. So, yeah, I mean, why not make this pure cinema? This is 70 millimeter. I've said it before. I saw it at the Cinerama Dome and that original 70 print. And I'm telling you, there is nothing. I was absolutely tears in my eyes when I saw the size of that lens flare that was in the corner <laughs> when they're heading to the monolith. You know, that one guy's <laughs> coming towards you. And that lens flare was the size of my head. And it was just an orange block. To the, the majesty of feeling like you're actually being transported, even when you're not on a substance in 1968 right. watching it in the theater. And I think Universe inspired a lot of that. Mm. Kind of like voyaging through the stars and interplanetary discoveries. And and him going... And Universe has that feel. Yes. Yeah, definitely. If we looked outward from Mercury, we would see the second closest planet, Venus, shining brighter than the much more distant stars. Venus, in orbit 31 million miles further out from the sun, is a mystery, for its face is veiled by dust storms, or perhaps dense cloud. Whereas the Trumbull film, uh, is it To the Moon and Beyond? Uh -huh. Yes. yes. Kind of doesn't, but mm -hmm. it's doing a different thing. It does have the scope, though, yeah, because you've got the idea of cinemascope and how do you move people the way I'm being moved with awe and being transported in 70 millimeter. I, I like everything that you just said and it, it summed it up pretty well. Did I talk about how 2001 may also be sort of a love letter to motion pictures and writing? Did I go into that with no, you guys? No, let's do. Well, like The Shining, 2001 is also expressing this, this theme of creation all the time. 
Mm. Um, and it's got that theme of bones in it. There's the, the prehistoric bone in the beginning, and then there's the symbolic technologic sort of bone that's inscribed into the ship in places, mm. which I think George Lucas used a little bit of for his design of R2-D2. So you get that sense of creation going on, and, and it, it could be a little bit of a stretch, but even a stretch works in this discussion that you get a sense of, you know, creating a motion picture also with, with 2001, with the expression of lights, action, camera hmm. in the very beginning and a little bit of shadow play with the moon. Uh-huh. And then later on, you see the film reel and the keyway ah. going into it. Beautiful. And then you get a sense of editing with how they do the BBC interview. Hmm. You get the sense of uh, delayed timings and how it all has to be spliced together later on. Hmm. And then I was like, well, how does this end? I don't How does this end? I guess Bowman goes into stardom. <laughs> I love that. Coming along right after eight and a half, you have the beleaguered director trying to work against a hostile producer who's actually trying to kill him and your ad gets fired out of uh <laughs> existence not off the movie but out of out of the hole in the <laughs> side of the ship somebody's got to die for the story that's right <laughs> and then lo and behold the producer goes and and spends all the money from the backers so the backers uh, <laughs> end up dead and starved of their life force as well. <laughs> and and I think I wanted to lead into that, that there is so much to talk about with Kubrick's films that there's no way that you can cover it all, unfortunately. There's so many facets that he includes in his visuals, and his stories. Like I said, his pictures are worth three to five K words. <laughs> <laughs> From Clavius Base, this is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Bye bye. Bye bye. Troglodytes are eating. Meet my friend, Troglodytes. I <laughs> <Lovely>. <laughs>